KZSU, Stanford, 90.1 FM. I'm Mark Mono. This is the Henry George Program, the show all about big business and land speculation. In the program, we have back on Alan Joyce, and he is on to talk about something we've all been wanting to talk about for a long, long time, the history and analysis of McDonald's as one of the world's biggest landlords. We have a deep, deep dive into the history of McDonald's, what they did to speculate on land, where they are today as far as real estate, investment trust in other terms. But without further ado, let's just get into things. So welcome back to the show, Alan. Hello! Good to be back. It's great to be back. You have been on two times before, very, very popular episodes. One Really? Uh, pe- people loved it. I get fan mail all the time, okay, uh, which good. I failed to uh, forward to you. Uh, but uh, <laughs> I yeah, would appreciate it if you would. You're not going to get forward me my fan mail. One on basically the role of uh, land rents and so on in video games, and one about the role of land rents in uh, Walt Disney theme park enterprises. And now, now you're back in the gracious uh, role as uh, resident uh, McDonald's correspondent. Yeah, and I, you know, I don't claim to be as much of an expert on McDonald's as I am on those other two topics, but I, uh, I certainly am familiar with it. Uh, just name a few credentials. You've been to McDonald's. I've been, a- I've, I've been to at least one McDonald's, and likely many more than that. Um, I, I consider you an expert. Yes, and I have uh, leafed through at least one book on McDonald's. And I have watched the movie The Founder twice. Great, yeah. So that's that's plenty. And I, I've 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 read through some other books uh, on McDonald's. It's it's and read some papers and so on. So let's just have a conversation, uh, starting maybe about the facts and fiction of the movie uh, The Founder, a sure. biopic about uh, Ray Kroc. So I guess, I guess just for people who know nothing about McDonald's, uh, what what is McDonald's? Well, uh, let's see. McDonald's is a fast food, no, sorry, quick service restaurant, uh, which is to say it is a place where you can roll up in your car or on foot or in your car and then get out of your car and then walk in on foot and you can request food um, and that food will be available for you within a very short time frame and then you can eat it there or you can take it home or wherever you'd like to go the park um true true or false mcdonald's was the first of its kind false uh, th- that's that's exactly exactly right i mean it, mcdonald's it, not even i mean i think uh, that they uh definitely had some extra concepts uh, the original to to kind of speed it up have a small window but there's been quick service hamburger stands and so on long before uh, and really what's special about it compared to other uh, fast food places uh, I think is kind of what we're talking about here uh, and that is the fact that McDonald's isn't just a fast food place it's also uh, it's also a real estate company it, it's a fast food place uh, sorry a quick service restaurant it's a real estate company it's a world-renowned brand it is. I, I heard people say it's the world's uh, biggest brand, which is quite biggest. a statement, but I can hmm. believe it. Biggest by value? <laughs> by, by, by size. The logo, by size. <laughs> the logo is just huge. Well, no, if I, you I added up all by... of the places that the logo is and you took the total size of the logos. Yeah. I imagine it's recognition, uh, but... Okay. It might be. I mean, in terms of total surface area of logos deployed worldwide, I bet, I bet it's up there. 
So I think here is kind of the question I want to pose on this show, which is what lessons can we learn from McDonald's uh, and kind of like what is the standard like maybe story of business and how is McDonald's different? Because I think, you know, the standard stories of how exploitation works in the business world, I mean, McDonald's, like, I, I, like it's a lot of weird stuff going on, but it's not your typical... Uh, you know, it's it's not your typical boss and worker thing. It is it is very much like the weird landlord, uh, you know, firm. So you can think about it as exploitation, or you can think about it as value creation. I, I think we can have that debate. Well, and here is the synthesis. Uh, I think all value creation in the history of business is done by freaks and sickos who <laughs> like we're just like here is the thing like who like the people behind. Uh, McDonald's and every business are like just weird people who are never satisfied. And uh, McDonald's, I think, is special because they had like a bunch of freaks who are like big into kind of like, uh, you know, getting loans and working with money. And they had other freaks who are just like obsessed with hamburgers. And that's like, it's a dream combination. You need both. You need the business and the product. Absolutely. And I think uh, we're finally asked a question later in the show, should McDonald's spin off the real estate holdings? Uh, and I, I, I'm going to say right now, I believe the answer is no. But let's whoa, go. whoa, whoa! No spoilers. No spoilers. Uh, let's talk about the history of McDonald's. Yes. Okay. The um. Well, where do we want to start? Are we want to start on the Ray Kroc side, or we want to start on the McDonald's brothers side? Uh, let's start with uh, uh, Ray Kroc. Okay. Uh, he's a man. He was a man. He was died in 1984 or something like that. Yep. Um. Former uh, San Diego Padres owner, or at least ownership group leader. I don't know the exact financial arrangement. Yep. Um, and businessman. Initially failed businessman. There's there's a factoid in the book Big Mac, one of the two books. Uh, the, the larger book I have here, McDonald's Behind the Archers by John F. Love, has a lot more excruciating and wonderful detail about the financials. Uh, but there's an early thing in Big Mac where they say his father said early in his like life, it's like, you can only trust the land, you know, invest in real estate. That's all you can trust. And I mean, to be fair, that's, I, I'm, that's a pretty common piece of advice. I don't, I, that's, that's not like, it, it's not hard to imagine that, that someone would have told him that. No, which I, yeah, it's, it's been said before, but what's funny is Ray Kroc took that to heart. And in the mid twenties went down to Florida, uh, invested in land, worked with real estate investment, uh, speculative firms, and then lost. Sure, yeah. Went busto. And then later came back and bought a mansion. Yeah, he was a rebound a rebound master. But, uh, yeah, I mean, he that is a thing about uh, buying up land. It sounds like, oh, that's, you know, landlords always come ahead. But here's the thing. Like, if you buy land, you don't act, you, you can't just buy land and get rich. You have to buy low and then have it, you know, increase well, value. And you have to, like pretty much any other financial bet, Right, you have to have a theory for, uh, you know, essentially three things. Right, you have to you have to uh, believe that, uh, you know, the status quo is going to change in some way that's going to be beneficial to the to to the to the move you're making. Uh, you have to believe that you know something about how it's going to change that other people are not seeing. Um, and you have to believe that there is going to be some sort of instigating factor that is going to cause that change to occur, right? And 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 so if if the yeah if you're just buying some plots of land in a random place that's not changing in any way, 
doesn't have any catalyst for that change to happen, and everyone mutually, you know, generally agrees on the value of that land, it's probably not going to make you much money. <laughs> yeah, I and mean, you're describing how you make money in passive ways. Of course, if you're making money in active ways, you, you effectively are getting paid for the work you're doing, but that's not what land speculation is. Uh, but yeah, after he went bust in Florida, he uh, was in the uh, the cup biz for a good uh, 25 years. Good business. There's a lot of cups uh, that need making. Yeah, I in the in the movie, he's like he is at one point like uh, he's like looks at like paper. Uh, by the way, the mo- uh, Michael Keaton, wonderful in it. Oh, what a what a film! Don't, don't don't like biopics. Don't think it's great cinema, but it is the right kind of hagiography that uh, McDonald's needs. I it's and apparently I was uh, watching some of the or one of the extras, which I think auto played after the movie finished. <laughs> It was an odd thing. I've never seen that happen before. And it was a it was a panel discussion with the makers of the movie. And uh, you know, apparently, I guess they they tried to option several books uh, on the topic and weren't able to get the rights because McDonald's had bought the rights to all of these books to try and bury the story. And so it does seem like it's kind of this. Uh, you know, it, it took a while to get to the point where someone could actually make this movie um, because McDonald's has been has been trying to stop it. Yeah, I've, I've heard people say, you know, it's like, I watched the movie, and I thought it was just a Ray Kroc biopic, but it turns out he's the villain, and I, I'm not sure oh, I agree. Oh, no, yeah. he's not the villain. Yeah, the, the McDonald's brothers are the villains. The, yes, the, and they're in their inefficient business tactics. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. Thank you so much. Thank you. But, uh, so, uh, you know, Ray Kroc, he's in the cup biz. In the movie, like, he's like a paper, paper uh, takeout stuff. He actually was, in real life, he was early on the carryout food biz huh he, he worked with like walgreens and other kind of you know uh sit down counter places and tried to say you could make more business if everyone's crowded at the lunch counter you can you know carry out food this is a nice through line because he's always looking for basically bottlenecks and trying to optimize them which is you know that's not a bad bet yeah, so he's looking for ways. He works in the cups. Cups are mostly used uh, at this time for, you know, uh, the dairy biz, milkshakes and more. Uh, and uh, It's my he, favorite uh, dairy company. Oh, it's wonderful. Uh, yeah, he And then he goes from, uh, you know, kind of working in this to realizing people have new big products, including the multi-mixer, the first uh, piece of equipment that you have one motor powers four different uh, spinners. So that's pretty cool. To make milkshakes. To make milkshakes. Yep. And that's the old classic way, which is, you know, a couple of scoops of ice cream. Uh, but, you know, he is trying to work with this. Here is, like, the first part of him kind of, you know, I guess floundering as a person. And I think this is interesting. He is working. His, his, his real business is urban lunch counters in cities. And this is like this is happening like really like post war all of his business goes away. Part of this has to do with the fact the multi mixer no longer has a monopoly on its thing. Hamilton Beach, uh, the wonderful company behind the uh, your home egg McMuffin maker mm. uh, that everyone may may uh, know, uh, they came out with their own two spinner multi mixer. So yeah. uh-huh. uh, but here's a bigger deal: it's just cities were emptying out. You know, lunch counters. The old malt shop, that isn't really so much a thing anymore. Sure. And, uh, you know, people are spreading out to the suburbs. 
So wait, but how does that how does that correspond? You're saying you're saying that that resulted in less demand for multi mixers. Yeah, I mean because yeah, you've got I, less you've got less crunch on a single location to produce lots of of um, milkshakes. Exactly, and you know what the biggest uh, chain was? It also messed up the milkshake biz in the late '40s, like Foster 19- Freeze. Uh, actually, that's third or lower on the list. Uh, I'm going for Dairy Queen here. Oh, okay, yeah, Dairy Queen. You know gangbusters in the late 40s also tasty freeze oh yeah sure huge huge businesses and i'm going to talk a bit later about how all these different businesses made money because it's it's pretty crazy all their different uh ideas to make money but in any case uh he is still in the multi-mixer business it's not going great uh but you know he's comfortable uh but what comes to his life is the mcdonald's brothers yes out in California. Uh, San, San Bernardino. Oh, what a town. Yeah, so they've got their, uh, you know, small burger stand, and they've got quite the operation. They got a, they've got a highly choreographed, efficient system for delivering burgers to customers. Your order is ready in 30 seconds, not 30 minutes. That's correct. Um and uh but they but it's a small operation it's just their one stand i guess so it, in the movie they had said they tried to expand in the past and it didn't go well is, is that real I, I i didn't actually look into that yeah so they actually even had a franchise guy who worked with them mm. i think they said they had uh, up to uh 15 people who who uh, bit on getting the franchise mm-hmm. uh but of that uh you know i think only 10 were built and, and this is in a time when franchises were hot. Yeah, well, it's it's interesting because here's the thing. Okay, so you are, what is valuable in this world? And in this case, uh, for the McDonald's brothers, it is an idea. It's it's a system. It a, is a the, syst- yeah, it, 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 not just. I mean, it's a it's a set of, um, you know, practical methods for delivering burgers to customers that are replicatable but but you know they at least have an edge over the competition in their current implementation of that so the question is is this a trade secret uh the the, the answer to, in no case, because it's not protectable it, 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 it in terms of you you couldn't actually keep that secret right exactly and in, yeah. case, in their case they kept extremely poorly hidden because they're they called it like a fishbowl it was a small octagonal stand you could just look in and see the kitchen yeah that's i mean if if coca-cola publishes their recipe on their website it's no longer a trade secret right so it, it's equivalent to that yeah exactly so uh but they did try to franchise and they did do it 15 times before ray crock was on the scene uh here was their package uh you you pay a thousand bucks to become a franchisee to the speedy service system. You get, I think, like, uh, you get the architectural plans, you get the speedy service system, like, book, which I think is probably, like, 20 pages, mm. uh, and you pay a 1000 bucks, and then you can use your name. You, you can use the McDonald's name. Well, uh, I mean, it, it's a one-time fee? It's a one-time fee. That seems worth it. <laughs> well, I mean, here's the thing. It's like, you can do it, and, the like, the uh, the thing about it is, okay, sure, run with it. But, like, what are you buying? Are you mm-hmm. buying a secret or are you buying the reputation of McDonald's? That's that's the thing. You're buying the reputation of McDonald's, which I guess in, <laughs> at, right, the time, in, at the time is not worth that much. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's, that's, yeah. that's the thing. That is the overall overarching problem of the original franchise model. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, and here's the thing about this too: because it was so poorly hidden, other people were just legitimately making clones of McDonald's in San Bernardino at the time. Yeah, they they were already a big splash. I think they like you made like the covers of even national magazines even before Ray Kroc visited them because they were doing great biz. Yeah, they were they were you know the the equivalent of like a Five Guys today. Yeah, that was when they got big. I think it was more like you had to be in the restaurant business. But it's like it's a one-off crazy. It was more like a Guy Fieri kind of like, look at this small stand, you know. Cool, sure. cool, cool place. But a, a guy made a bunch of hamburger handout stands uh, kind of copying McDonald's. It's mm-hmm. like, it's like okay, so is everyone just in the business? They were they're doing good biz. They're making good money. They, like, bought a Cadillac every year. So like they're they're doing pretty well, but the question is, you didn't have a real freak like Ray Kroc who's like, I'm gonna make this bigger than you can imagine. Sure, and, and that's where he enters the picture. Yes, and boy does he! He rolls up, you know, in his, in his um, I don't know what kind of car he drove in the in the movie. Do you remember? I don't remember offhand. Um, it was, it was uh, pretty nothing cool. Nothing particularly fancy, but you know, a, a big old you know '60s era sedan. Um. And uh, so, yeah, he rolls up and samples the product, likes it quite a bit, um, likes their their system, gets a tour of the kitchen. I assume that happened in in real life, and uh, and and is all in. wants wants a, a wants to wants to help them franchise it. wants to be a franchisee. wants to take the idea to to new heights outside of California. Correct. Uh, in real life, though, it's interesting. He like w- he was on their radar for a while. This is 1954, I believe. He visited. I think in 1953, in real life, uh, Ray Kroc had a newsletter that he sent out to his to his Blender customers, and like even featured the McDonald's brothers a year before he got curious enough to meet them. Yeah, I mean, this is the sort of thing. I mean, that just doesn't play well in a screenplay. Sure, exactly. You got to clean it up. Yeah. And I think in the uh, in the movie, they said like, "Oh, we fired our old franchise guy." Uh, I'm now reading in myths of the movie, the founder on the Joan Crock website. Uh, in fact, their old franchisee uh, died of a heart attack. So that's what opened opened the gate for Ray Crock. Okay. So okay, so here is the thing. Ray Crock says this is an amazing idea. I'm going to make a bunch of money from this. I'm going to ask you, if you had to make a bunch of money uh, from franchising, how would you structure the money going back to you? Um, well, so um, there's you know a percentage of sales. Well, so first of all, we'll talk through There's the, the existing model, which is bad, which is one-time fee, yeah. right? One-time fee is not is not going to give you a sustainable source of of revenue because at some point you'll reach saturation, and and the, there you will no longer be any value accruing to you because each franchise will be off and running and has already paid its franchise fee. There's like weird incentives going on, but uh, in the case of of uh, Ray Kroc, they have kind of a plus version of this. Uh, so their original structure, this is, I believe, March 1st, 1955. He sets up the McDonald's System Incorporated. And uh, now it is you pay a $950 fee, mm-hmm. but you also have to pay 1.9% of sales back to uh, McDonald's System Incorporated. There you go. That's of, the thing that makes it sustainable. Of that 1.9, 1.4 goes to Ray Kroc, and then 0.5% goes to the McDonald's brothers. Yes, so that's uh, it's more sustainable, but uh, here is like it's here is the thing like even for many many years, 
uh, like that's really the 1.4 percent doesn't really even keep keep the operations up. It's not profitable enough. Right. Yeah. Um, and and he doesn't really in, in that model doesn't really have a whole lot of uh, leverage over the franchisees because they are uh, I, I guess you know able to control their own destiny and and uh, owe him a minority of their profits. So. So let me tell you a little bit about other tricks other places have done over the years. Uh, you know, so the first chain of any chain was, in fact, A&W Root Beer Company. Oh, sure. Yeah. Uh, they had a $2,000 fee, and you had to buy the concentrate from A&W. Yes. So this is, right, the equivalent of something like the uh, KFC Herbs and Spices, where there's a proprietary formula which must be continually acquired from the mothership. And then the mothership can charge whatever it wants for the proprietary formula because you can't have a KFC franchise that doesn't have the herbs and spices. Yeah, so that's how you keep you on the leash. Uh, KFC, I have in front of me, I believe you paid a territory fee and then five cents per bird. And this this predated uh, McDonald's getting on the scene. Uh, but other things, Howard Johnson's was, I think, the chain for many years. The famous mm. orange-roofed. Uh, orange roofs of, of of Howard Johnson's. There's still one across the street from Disneyland. Oh wow, that's huge. Oh yeah. Uh, he, here is their thing: is they sold you had to buy Howard Johnson, you know, wholesale ice cream and other foods from them. Wow. And uh, they had a you know big markup, and they were sometimes you know it's like you were you were stuck, you know, and that's that's one way to make to make money. Uh, people went kind of crazier stuff. Some places went huge based upon the idea of like, okay, you sell off one-off territories. Okay, that's a little bit of money. I want to make more money quicker. Uh, what about selling off territory rights? This is a really quick way <laughs> to get a lot of money. <laughs> well, this is like a pyramid scheme. Yeah, I get, but I guess the thing is, it's kind of like, it's more like a fly-by-night. Yeah, you're first off the, the line. Yeah. You sell off. It's like, okay, you get all the rights to uh, to sublet like franchise a rights third in, in of this the area. country exactly yeah. i mean that's that's yeah total pyramid scheme you're then you're then leaving whoever that is holding the bag to actually find franchisees and you're off the hook yeah so you you get a you have a stack of money in front of you but that's it you know end of, yeah. end of story no it's a great model if you don't actually care about any long term potential of the you know of, of the business yeah exactly but that's not uh, ray crock in this no, case no no he's all in yeah so uh dairy queen uh, i think they had like a lot per store uh and they you had to buy 40 uh, uh, for fee and then 45 cents per gallon on the ice cream you had to buy their ice cream mix sure Tasty Freeze has an even crazier thing. Uh, they uh, would sell you a freezer, have kind of up on costs, but then they would lease you uh, the pump. It was a cheap pump that you use on it, but it was proprietary. Wow. And you couldn't buy it. You had to lease it from them. Wow. So, so if you were a bad uh, operator, they could, uh, quote unquote, pull the pump. And in fact, you would uh, be, uh, you would have no other, you know, uh, thing there. Uh, there is a company called Chicken Delight. Uh, they made. They had a bunch of kind of uh, pressure cookers for chicken. This is a huge chain, uh, but uh, you had to get all of their kitchen equipment. You had to buy their kitchen equipment. Mm. Uh, here is a big problem with a lot of these things. You know, these are kind of a weird contract. Is this going to hold up in court? In fact, in the mid '60s, uh, Chicken Delight was taken to court, and they ruled 
this is a uh, an- under antitrust law. No, you cannot do this. The people v chicken delight. Something like that. I <laughs> the exact exact uh, people who, who sued, but uh, and they they said no, you can't do this. And chicken delight went bankrupt almost immediately afterwards because wow. that was their entire way to keep. But that doesn't leash. quite. I mean, is I don't not being able to do that in general sounds sounds unte- or it just sounds like incorrect. Not I mean, not being able to do that because they didn't structure their contract correctly or something sounds like something that could could you know I I could see that happening, right? Well, I think the main thing is it's you know whether it holds up or not. It's a question. Yeah. Uh, if you but flash- like K- <laughs> I mean KFC for I mean you can't. Uh, you have to allow KFC, the the franchisor, to uphold the standard of if you buy KFC chicken, it is made using KFC's recipe, right? I mean, like you can't. There's. Are you sure about that? <laughs> I mean, here's the thing: our courts are set up to uphold property claims. The claim of a uh, a fast food genius in the franchisees that's a very new unfounded and weird claim maybe Mm. now it sounds more uh, set in stone but if you like plop you down in the mid 50s it's unlikely that you know this is going to hold up yeah yeah that's fair no certainly it's less it's less tenable but it it just seems to me like uh you it, it is actually in customer's best interest to be able to have a system where the central you know organization can can guarantee the, a you know a consistent product right yeah it's i mean it's it's a good goal but the thing is can you trust the court system and the answer is in a lot of these cases maybe they thought, apparently not apparently not it, yeah. uh but real property that actually is protected by the courts and that's of course that's a way the McDonald's comes ahead. Uh, Ray Kroc gets really angry at the uh, McDonald's brothers for a lot of different reasons. Yeah, they're they're slow. They you know to respond to requests. They don't want to allow any changes. They don't want to do anything cheaply. Um, and they're squeezing him for five percent or for point five percent, which is um, which is more than he can afford. Yeah, I mean everything. Everything matters, but mostly they just are a pain to work with. In which fact, I, I believe that it's true. I mean, for all sorts of reasons, he was really angry with these guys. Uh, but one big reason he got angry was uh, he he like says, "I'm going to start the first franchises in the Chicagoland area." Mm-hmm. Uh, but because he's right outside the city proper, it turns out that he was blindsided. He goes back, he tries to set this up, and he realizes. Uh, the, right before they signed, without telling him, the McDonald's brothers sold a territory right to Cook County, Chicago. Wow. So this guy named Fryick or something now owns all of Chicago, isn't even using the franchise, but now Ray Kroc is locked out. Wow. So he actually has to go to this guy, pays him uh, $25,000 to get back Chicago. And like <laughs> this, just this, I think this gets him off to a bad foot. Like these are not good business people. Uh, yeah, they're hurting our, hurting our growth potential. Yep. Yeah, but uh, he starts doing stuff. He, you know, he uh, at once is just trying to find a bunch of you know, uh, food freaks. You know, people who just care about hamburger operations. Uh, but mostly he just needs people who just want to uh, join. Uh, and he hires kind of like his local crack crew. He you know gets franchises from his country club. But, you know, he uh, the main thing is it's early on. It's very hard to kind of crack the whip and keep 
your operators, uh, you know, in line. Sure. Yes. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah. I mean, it, it, he's he's not he doesn't even all he has is the system and trying to uphold the system. He doesn't have any specific point of leverage over his his franchisees. Exactly. And here's the thing: the system, the 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 speedy service system, like it just is not good enough. Like there's a bunch of different systems out there. It, yeah. Like it's just a small pamphlet. Well, and what are you going to say to a franchisee like, "Oh, I'm going to I'm going to take away your speedy packet." <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah. I mean, what's more than that is you need to offer them like if you're part of this franchise, there's a real value add. And sure. part of this is what if there was great like uh, R&D. We have like constant development on how to make the perfect french fry. Sure. And that's what uh, more of these hamburger freaks bring to the team when they get uh, Fred Turner on team. And, you know, starting late 50s, he starts developing, like, what is the perfect way to make a French fry? And, you know, it's like this, I mean, you're already talking about the very thin, thin uh, line. Yeah. But, uh, <laughs> like, this is, like, taking a lot of room to just, like, develop. Okay, uh, his trick, by the way, was, like, measuring, I think, the rise from the minimum oil temperature hit to when you reach the top oil temperature hit like that's the magic thing there's all these like weird tricks but you know this is this is come easy but this certainly gets you a lot better than if you sign up for you know a hamburger handout and then what do you get like sure. you, you get yeah. a bunch of like plagiarized <laughs> what half-baked mcdonald's plans whereas this is a real thing and one more huge value add is as he is starting to grow, he needs to find out uh, uh, relationships with suppliers. And when you have suppliers working with you... You can do scaled deals where you get uh, supplies for cheaper because all of your franchisees are buying... Are, are, you know, you're essentially doing a group order, which brings the cost down. Absolutely. And it, I think this is something that's kind of like forgotten about mid-century fast food. If you're buying like a, like a regular hamburger at some small stand in the mid-50s, like this is great D beef. Like it's mm. it's going to be just in general. They're really scrimping, uh, but when it goes to McDonald's, uh, instead you are you know going to actually have the ability to standardize the meat quality. Yeah. In a way that which was unheard of at the time. Because you can guarantee a level of volume for the meat producer such that it's now worth it for them to build out proper you know infrastructure for, uh, you know producing and and distributing the beef exactly yeah so you can actually you can actually use your your scale and on top of it you can also work with these suppliers to do weird stuff like he worked with this the biggest potato supplier out there uh, uh you know uh, turner and crock to uh have him develop ways to at once cold storage potatoes in the off season and then two freeze it ahead of time and, and then transport frozen potatoes sure which yeah. was un, un, not done at the time but yeah you have to innovate to stay you got to rethink every part of the pipeline absolutely and you also start investing in hamburger university you know other great oh, yes. programs yes hamburger university sounded great uh where you i didn't quite get the because again i skimmed it but what, what are you actually learning you're learning you're learning operations. You're uh, okay. learning everything it takes. McDonald's, when it started, it first made it like, I just, this is just funny of like, just the growth you see out there. The manual started at 75 pages. Uh, <laughs> Hamburg University was a $25,000 build in a basement of another McDonald's. Uh, by the 80s, the manual was 600 pages. 
and Hamburg University was a forty million dollar campus they built. So, wow. Yeah, so it's it's pretty cool stuff. But okay, here's the overall problem: they're still losing money. Yes, this isn't a money maker yet. Uh, and I think this is something you don't see in the movie at all, but is probably the coolest thing. And this is what I want to talk about a lot. Uh, he he hires Harry Sanen, uh, Sonnenberg, Sonnenborn, excuse me. Who's uh, the, wait, is is this the, um, what's this? This is uh, B.J. Novak. B.J. Novak, yeah, I was trying to remember the name of the actor. Yeah, okay. so B.J. Novak yeah. is, is Harry Sonnenborn. Yep. Uh, and uh, in reality, Harry Sonnenborn was an exec earlier for Tasty Freeze. Oh, okay. Experience so, in the industry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So knows how to how to uh, how it can go wrong. And Harry Sonnenborn uh, basically designs this system to uh, to make them money because at this point they they have uh, they have a secret. The secret is if you follow our operations, you will create a store that will make two hundred thousand dollars a year, which sure. is a lot in you know nineteen fifty eight. Yep. But you can't really monetize that to mcdonald's because even their cut just not that great mm-hmm. uh but so instead he realizes okay we need to take our value add uh, which is people hungry to be franchises and turn it into real assets that we own and he does this by uh getting getting uh real estate you're not in the burger business you're in the real estate business yeah it's, so this is it has two advantages you know it it one you know you have equity it's real stuff mm-hmm. and uh, the other one is uh, you can actually when you are the landlord of your franchise you can you can really crack the whip of course yeah and 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 so on the first point in contrast to his investment efforts in florida in this case he has basically all of the properties that i that i mentioned earlier right so you have uh, a a a a reason why this land is going to become more valuable because you're about to build a, a successful fast food chain on top of it. Um, B, you have a, a reason why you um, are are able to, you know, or have, have a, a better perspective or knowledge of that than anyone else because you're the one that's, <laughs> that's enabling the fast food chain to be built. And you have a catalyst. Because you're building the fast food chain, so it's like perfect. You have you have all the properties of uh, knowing that your land investment is going to pay off, or, or at least has a good chance of paying off, because you are actively the one, uh, you know, doing all of the all the steps needed to catalyze an, an increase in value of, of the land of the land itself or, or the surrounding area or or whatever. Right. Yeah, it's kind of like in a city, you would have people like try to increase the value of downtown building a sports stadium. But in this case, it's like you're out in the outer suburbs, and they're kind of increasing the value by building the McDonald's where they want to. Sure. Yeah. Uh, at the at the time, they say like there's just you know outside of like track development on the commercial strips, not a whole lot of people are bidding for land. It was basically uh, only gas stations, the oil companies, you know, hmm. buying up. So like they were art, buying it cheap, you know. But here is a problem, and I think this is what's really funny is. Uh, you think like, okay, this is a good business. People are making a lot of money. Uh, let's just get loans, get this started, get people buying stuff. Uh, but like banks don't really want to talk to them. Like, sure. Cause like at the time, like you, like their assets are literally like thousands of bucks when they start. Yeah. Like they have nothing in the bank. So how do you get a bank? Cause here's what they want to do. They want to work with a franchise and then their plan. It's, it's worth mentioning, uh, originally 
Their plan was not to own everything, including the land, because that's a little too much to ask for. But their original plan is phase one, phase A, if you will. Phase A is they find a landowner, they uh, lease it from them, they get money to build the McDonald's. And they sublet? And then they sublease. Weird. They sublease with a 20%, later a 40% markup. Sure. I mean, I get, I mean that's cash flow, but uh, it's but you're not you're not building any assets there. You I mean having a lease. I mean, just one. This is a better operation. I guess I mean, yeah, sure. A long-term lease is itself does have some value attached to it. Uh they set up net-net leases, which you further defray the risk. Are you familiar with net-net lease? No. Uh this uh net-net lease, you now see triple net, which is even, you know, kind of harder on the sublesser. But it means that, okay, I'm going to uh, lease out to you, but if property taxes go up, you have to pay. Oh, if that's uh, clever. Yeah. If <laughs> uh, insurance, you know, any kind of extra risk from insurance, you have to pay. <laughs> so, like, that's actually one of the worst things about Prop 15 last year that was kind of deadly is, like, this commercial landowners would have to pay more property tax. But because it's so common that you, if people are kind of desperate, they get a triple net a lease it means the extra property tax would go to their lesser so yeah. the actual landowner gets off scot-free like this sucks yeah and which is uh this sideline i'm going to start a political mission to uh unionize uh sub and get them not to sign triple net leases well so i mean it, so in general sure in this specific situation I think part of the dynamic is mcdonald's was such a hot property and was so easy to to or maybe not easy but like it certainly it was something that you had uh people jumping at the chance to be a franchisee for such that you could get them into a a pretty non-ideal you know lease situation like this easier than you would if they were just a, a, a any any other commercial you know lessee right Exactly. They had people who were hungry, and this is yeah. how they— Literally like, and figuratively. They have a lot of people who are hungry for hamburgers, and they have one franchisee who's hungry to serve them hamburgers. Uh, but, yeah, so the overall cost, I think at this point, is like 75000 uh, in the late 50s. Uh, and, you know, the thing is McDonald's doesn't have that 75000 to build it up front. Sure. They need, they need capital. Uh, they get their franchisor. They have to pay a security deposit. They're not paying them. They're just like effectively loaning them a security deposit of ten thousand uh, dollars, later fifteen thousand mm. dollars. Then they uh, lease the land. McDonald's does. In, in fact, actually, it's not McDonald's. This isn't the McDonald's system uh, incorporated. This is a separate company set up by Harry Sonnenberg, uh, named the Franchise Realty Corp, which puts it outside of the McDonald's brothers' purview. Which, I mean, even the McDonald's system in, uh, incorporated was already kind of outside the purview. Sure, but yeah. this is even further outside. Yeah. Uh, but, okay, so they they uh, they get this $10,000 security deposit. They get the lease. And uh, what they do is they now use the $10,000 to further leverage purchases. Like, they, they just have, like, it's, it's, it's this entire chapter of this book is nothing less than like a cunt gems. It's just Harry, <laughs> it's Harry Sonnenborn, like borrowing money from people using to leverage other things to borrow. Wow. It's it's a it's one of the best things I heard. And the thing he starts getting these deals where he works with like he has to actually have like collateral to get these loans 
to to uh, build the McDonald's. Mm-hmm. How do you uh, get the collateral when you actually don't have equity, like the whole company? In this case, he says, okay, uh, landowner, it's going to make so much money. This is a great deal uh, that, in fact, we're going to have your land that we're renting from you to be the collateral <laughs> to, to do the business. So, wow. So, like, we're going to pay you $700 uh, is, is, our, is, our, is our rent. But if we go out of business, you're going to lose <laughs> you're your land. You're going to lose your land. <laughs> Which is one of the, but they were like, "That's amazing! It's fantastic!" Uh, and well, this is, but this speaks to the, uh, you know, the, the 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 underlying value of what they had, which was a hot property that, a uh, 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 you know, property being the McDonald's property, the the brand uh, that that people wanted to get in on, and everything else kind of falls from there. You can you can get people to do a lot of you know stupid things if. You have a, an in-demand, uh, you know, brand or or property or product. Exactly. It's 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 the funniest. They're so desperate to be part of the McDonald's family that when it's like fifteen thousand dollars by the by the early '60s, they now are trying to actually buy the land outright. What they're doing is they're taking the security deposit. They're using it to get <laughs> land and property, build a McDonald's, and then rent it back to you with the money that you paid them which wow. is just inc- like it's very funny that like you're basically you know uh, giving someone money and then renting it back from them it's it's <laughs> it's what a what a great scam and everything lines up here because it's worth mentioning they're out in the outer suburbs at the perfect time for you know effectively you know, speculating on on what's kind of pristine greenfield development sure uh there is something i think uh, ray Kroc said which is like you know, when you want to build a McDonald's, look for schools, look for steeples. That's our that's our country. <laughs> There's a story in here about one guy. He's like they have a, they had a whole crew of real estate staff who were just scoping out where to buy. Mm. So this one real estate staff they had, he he would go so far in so far to have like aerial photographs of like suburban development, and then use it to kind of methodically look for schools and steeples. <laughs> then he would do his own traffic studies to see where traffic was flowing. Cool. To determine whether like future booms were that would be good for McDonald's. This is how you get an edge. I mean, th- this is data that other other franchise operations were probably not looking at. Absolutely. And here is the thing that you're one hundred percent. You ever heard of Burger Chef? No. Burger Chef was kind of like the poor man's Burger King, but it was huge. It was it grew much bigger than McDonald's. Uh, by the uh, by, the early seventies, probably most remembered today because in the uh, Vonnegut book Breakfast of Champions, uh, the guy who's like the protagonist is like on the side, like has spun up a few Burger Chef franchises. <laughs> okay, good. <laughs> Which just shows you like just how little because like he's yeah. Well, it's, it, it, at this point, it serves it, it's it's a nice fictional name for a burger restaurant. <laughs> yeah, I, I know. Like it's famous for that, and also yeah, the Family Circle uh, was there. The Family oh. Circus, excuse me, was their tie-in. Like big, big get as far mm. as like their uh, uh, their 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 ads. But uh, Burger Chef, you know, it it did do the McDonald's thing of growing huge and fast. But they actually laid off their entire real estate team. Oh, and I, I think this is a big thing. That's... Like, they just their locations were not good. Yeah. Uh, so it's uh, but in this case, yeah, it's you know the the land speculation was huge. So that's yeah. step one. They were 
you know, buying the boom for the suburbs in the perfect way. Perfect. And they were, it wasn't just that they were speculating on the land. They had a formula for actually adding value to, you know, specifically the plots of land they were buying. Yes. I mean, they had they had a proven winner, not just for like, if you're buying land and sitting on it, you'd probably do okay. Mm-hmm. But when you're buying land that's tailored for McDonald's in a way that you will actually kind of grow there, that's that's very, very smart. Here's the other thing. Everything worked out perfectly for them. This is happening throughout the 60s. They're, you know, uh, they're desperate. But here is the edge. Like, how do you make an edge? If the oil companies are, like, buying this up and they are huge, huge companies mm. and you're just McDonald's who has no assets, what do you do? And Harry Sonnenberg's thing is he's saying that, okay, I will pay much higher <laughs> interest. Uh, I'll take out huge amounts of debt at huge rates. Uh, so he is saying both, like, if you're, you know, uh, first leasing, I'll pay a huge premium. Uh, I'll pay you uh, 10%, basically the overall uh, value of the land, 10% per year of the overall value, as opposed to the oil companies will pay you 7%. Okay. And he's taking out loans of 18%, which is huge. Yeah, <laughs> yeah of course, yeah. Uh, but as this is happening, like there was kind of out of necessity because this is very uncut gems. He's just like trying to stay alive. <laughs> as this is happening, like you're hitting a moment of uh, of of inflation uh, throughout the economy. So all, almost all their their all their debt is being wiped off the books. Wow. Yeah. So it's just really good timing for these guys. Every it was just golden. So uh, just like the French fries. Yeah. It's a. Uh, one like I think later they said I think this happened uh, in I don't know if it was the late seventies or early eighties they moved into Europe their first European place they moved into uh, mainland Europe actually it might have been earlier in the seventies was uh, Amsterdam it was somewhere in uh, in the trickier not can't repeat the same formula there well they did they actually bought exurban suburban land and tried to build up McDonald's in the same way and they failed terribly yeah because. They didn't have uh, the failure of American cities. <laughs> their, <laughs> their inner cities have not rotten out. Yeah. And they didn't have the suburban boom. Uh, and people had car-based culture there as much as they did here. And they actually, their entire game plan in the Netherlands was a failure because they just said like, oh, this is just like America. And it's not. Yeah. Well, also, maybe people have marginally less demand there for hamburgers. but Well, it, actually, that was the... I'm going to talk about international stuff in a, in a minute because okay. uh, they actually thought the same thing. They said, like, okay, well, let's actually accommodate the Netherlands. We'll have oh, less hamburgers. No, have, no, that's not the strategy at have, all. Have more applesauce. No. And other Amsterdam foods. No, that's not, that's not, you're not playing to your strengths there. <laughs> Absolutely. And that is the thing. They, they went, when they went to uh, Australia, uh, when they first started Makas in Australia, oh, their what first, a brand. they, they, uh, at first, Macca's, uh, not not Macca's, Macca's. That's just my Australian okay. accent. Sure. Uh, they they first said, okay, let's actually try to work with the Australian style of hamburger, which is lettuce, tomato, and mayonnaise. And you know, and they had more than the menu, and they had fish and chips in the menu. Yeah, no. And no. and I think it's like over time, and they said every time they served a real hamburger in their normal, the people picked off the pickles. And I think over over time, they were like, okay, this isn't working. Let's actually just try to get them to use our hamburgers. And then through tough love, I think every time they move internationally, they lost money for like nine years. 
but they effectively build the demand for American-style hamburgers, and they stopped serving fish and chips in Australian-style burgers. So that's what you do. I mean, that's that's if you say it's like kind of uh, capitalism as imperialism, you know, it definitely works in the burger world. You just kind of like dump <laughs> hamburgers, and then over time, people will buy them. Well, I think it speaks to you know they that they they need to focus on on how they're differentiated. I mean, if if they're just serving local food, there's plenty of local establishments that would be better equipped to do that. So it makes sense. You're going to play to your advantage. You're going to hope there's enough demand for your thing. Uh, you know, at this point, the hammer is a pretty generally, uh, you know, um, whatever, globally appreciated and in-demand product. At that time, maybe a little less so. But what are you going to do? You, there's there's plenty of existing supply for for whatever foods people are already eating in those places. Yeah, and I think you either like maybe you'll find a place that's completely hostile. But you know, Japan was the first place they went to. They're like, no one ate hamburgers at all. Yeah, and uh, they actually had to find. They worked with uh, this guy named Fujita, who was a uh, importer. And he said, like, okay, you know, uh, Japanese people are, you know, short and, you know, sallow skin because we eat rice and, and, and fish. If we eat hamburgers, we'll become tall and blonde. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, it's just, you make different pitches. Sure. Uh, uh, but back to Harry Sonnenberg, like, as he is going around, he's, like, getting loans from, like, basically the most fly-by-night small banks. Yeah. And he's, like, effectively just, like, you know, showing up, him and his other associates, and just kind of knocking the door. And if they don't talk to him, he'll, like, talk to the president. The president will talk to, the, like, the people who are, like, chairman of the bank. Just being really annoying. And and, and sort of capitalizing on uh, or trading on the the value and the renown of this upstart McDonald's thing that that is getting enough press and attention that it can open doors. Absolutely. And here's a, here's a good life hack. Uh, he, uh when you were saying, oh, well, what are your assets? Uh, instead of like showing your assets in a normal accounting way, use non-generally accepted accounting principles. <laughs> uh, so they actually use basically the present value of future streams of revenue uh, as, a, as, a, as an asset. Uh, which, which, to be fair, that probably was the right way to, to value McDonald's at the time. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's not... It is not generally accepted, but it's it's true. Yeah. Uh, so this put seventeen million dollars on their books. Uh, which that's fantastic. They well, had, they had a wipe off later. <laughs> because... Oh, that's really funny. There's there's a line in in Big Mac about um, the you know once McDonald's is a public trade publicly traded company and uh, it's it's I guess its book value was you know hundreds of millions of dollars, but its its market capitalization was was in the billi- low billions. And then U.S. Steel, you know, the book value was in the billions and the market capitalization was in the hundreds of millions. And uh, there's a quote from, I forget who, um, of, of like, wow, the economy is, is in tatters in, in a world, you know, if it's a world where, uh, where you know, uh, people are long on burgers and short on steel. And it's like, well, but, but yeah, like that's <laughs> like steel's pretty done. Like we've pretty much figured out steel. And, and there's quite a bit of innovation happening in this burger space. So if you look at, like, the potential for future value here, it probably is quite a bit larger versus the, you know, the, the, the current book value of, of, of specifically this company and, and potentially others in the same space. Yeah, in, in, in the stock market, you are looking for 
future growth in a way that isn't just like okay you know is it a, is it a private uh you know steel biz as opposed to yeah you're actually looking for like how is this company going to grow in the future and mcdonald's does have a greater growth profile than right. your average steel business uh, worth mentioning a sideline you know companies that don't have a growth profile uh in and out burger uh never ipo'd yep as uh, a private company never franchised they they right. own, they own and operate all their and and all of their locations are identical. <laughs> yeah, which is a part of the reason that they uh, you know just never got so big. You know, you could say, oh, is this like maybe it's a better form of burger? Some people say that, but the difference is, McDonald's wasn't just a better product. It was the product that grew at a freakish rate at the right time. Yeah, and that cannot be overstated, and they're. Uh, leveraged land speculation is what made them so many billions in sure. a lot of ways. Uh, the funny thing is like, so uh, Harry Sonnenborn, as he's like looking out to say like, what does a company need? Really? The company's doing okay. As far as like, you know, money, they don't need money at this point after he's done a few of these deals. Uh, but he says, we need legitimacy. We need to borrow a seven figure loan from a major uh, East Coast Bank. Oh, this is the VC model. <laughs> Absolutely, and this is the thing. Like, and he's like desperate, and he like he like he finally gets a a uh, a loan for one point five million dollars. Gives him twenty percent of the company there equity. There you go. That's yep. This is finding finding a large VC firm that justifies your valuation by giving you a lot of money. Absolutely, it's very <laughs> it's, it's extremely uh, modern in that sense. And this is what like leap. You're giving up. I mean, twenty percent huge yeah. for money they don't need. But it's all about that that branding. Sure. Yeah. It's, that's uh, so that's uh, that's kind of like the end of the Harry Sonnenborn story. He he takes over as CEO. Right before mm. the IPO, but then there was some he, there was some disagreement or or falling out with um with with uh, Ray Kroc. Well, they took like Ray Kroc. He was kind of like, well, I'll take I'll take California. Mm. Uh, this happened more or less the same time. This is like around 1961. They IPO'd a few years later, but after that 1.5 million dollar loan, that's when they were just fed up with the McDonald's brothers. And this is more oh, or less sure. Where, well, yeah, yeah. This is where the movie ends, more or less. The founder. Uh, the the bros want two point seven million dollars, and well, uh, and they want a a portion of future profits. That's what's in the movie. I think it real out. I think that's a complete fiction. Oh, interesting. Okay, I, I think really they just want them out of the picture entirely. But two point seven million dollars in the movie, it's kind of portrayed like, oh yeah, just write you a check. In reality, uh, this happened at a time where like they could not get two point seven million dollars, <laughs> even though they're making untold tens of millions in like overall revenue yeah uh so in like this is like i think it was a coincidence but they got the 1.5 million right before they needed to borrow more to buy off the mcdonald's brothers wow but it worked perfect so then a free and clear uh but yeah uh sonnenborn here's i guess the mcdonald's model sonnenborn was pure he was pure real estate. <laughs> like yeah. he did not care about hamburgers at all. Yeah, uh, he actually ran a few franchises. I think did a terrible job. Is the thing like he just didn't even like take care of them. Right, which uh, is not. I mean, you you want you would want the a person like that to run your real estate division. You would not want a person like that to be CEO uh, at, at a time when you actually do need product innovation to to grow in the market. Yeah, exactly. As opposed to Fred Turner, Fred Turner is a pure ops guy. Yeah, he, he like he cared a lot about the product. 
and kind of didn't know what he was doing as far as the business. He, yeah. he ran it, but I think he had like other people holding his hand. Uh, Ray Kroc was kind of a, a freak in both sides, you know. He or had, at least had, had yeah uh, had a good enough um, ability to balance the talents of his of his staff in a way that helped the broader whole, right? Exactly. So, uh, yeah, more or less, uh, Sonnenborn is over during the IPO. Uh, like, I think the overall end of the story, I want to see a sequel to the founder all about the Sonnenborn years, him <laughs> fighting with Ray Kroc, East Coast versus West Coast McDonald's. Uh, you know, he leaves the company, he resigns, sells off all his stock. Uh, but then, you know, Fred Turner takes over, tries to grow the company huger. Like, they were making like 200 uh, new ones every year. Uh, they they ramped up to five hundred new every year. Wow! Uh, yeah, it's just it's 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 pretty. You have to accelerate all the time to make this work. Uh, they go international, just gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And you know, there's other you know folks, but more or less, that's kind of the overall story of. <laughs> and and so, by this point, is, is it a one hundred percent? They're they're buying the land, or or is it is it still a split model, or, or like what's what's the situation? So I think starting in the late sixties, it became a thing that we will always buy the land if we're doing this model. Although Smart. I be, I believe uh, at different points there are. I think they say there's, of all McDonald's in the world, I'm looking at 2005 numbers, I think they said there's 18,000 they own 100% land in buildings. Wow. Uh, as opposed to actually 32,000 total McDonald's, mm-hmm. uh, which, you know, I, I think a lot of them are kind of, you know, it's, you, you only can lease it in certain places and so on. Oh, yeah, so, you're in a, if you're in like a, you know, downtown area where you're in a building that's, you know, uh like a, a the the ground floor of a of a large building or something, you're you're probably not going to be able to own that outright. Yeah, you, you make do when you can. Uh, there's also one other fold. Uh, during the Fred Turner years, the early years, he tried to put more and more into the Mick-Up Co. Uh, this mm-hmm. these are the uh, the the units which are run by McDonald's itself. Oh, the the so a company owned uh, restaurants. You're saying exactly. Yeah. McOp- yep. McOpco. Oh, McOpco. Yeah, <laughs> McOpco. Oh, I love visiting McOpco. So McOpco. Yeah. So originally, it wasn't that many. They're kind of like test kitchens. There are ways to kind of experiment, do more, train people, so on. Sure. He said these are good profit centers. Let's have more of them. Uh, they actually went up to like at one point went from nine percent to thirty three percent of of them were McOpcos. Wow. Uh, oh, because they were because they were much more profitable. They're much a, more profitable on a per store basis. Yeah, exactly. And here is here is a big uh, question, which is I'm looking at number uh, this. There's a uh, kind of this Pershing Pershing company in 2005 says, okay, we won't invest in McDonald's, but here's the problem, guys. Uh, you have two wings of you. You have McOpco, and you got your landlording. Yeah, uh, McOpco. On paper, seems very profitable, but uh, there's a lot of risk there, and there's fewer underlying assets. Absolutely, and that's that's kind of the thing. They're saying they have a, like a pie chart. Forty six percent at this time, this two thousand five, mm. was McOpco profits. Mm-hmm. But they're saying like this really underrates the fact that you're taking on all this risk, you're taking on capital assets, you're taking on land subsidies yep. that other times you're actually getting money from. These are opportunity costs you're not even realizing. Yep. They adjusted, saying instead of forty-two percent, it's really fourteen percent, and you know the actual landlord. Oh, when when you when you're sort of weighing it against the opportunity cost. At, yeah, exactly. Yep. Yep. So they're mm. saying like, really, we don't like McOpco. Stop doing <laughs> hamburgers. You should just be a real estate investment trust. 
Okay. Yeah, this this sounds like a Harry Sonnenberg uh, type of uh, you know advice here. It is, but I guess my if McDonald's was just a real estate investment trust, I think I would have less faith that they would be like maybe. Right. No, this yeah. comes back to uh, the the point earlier. I mean, you, you know, you if you if you were to put uh, the real estate guy in charge of the company. I think it would stagnate. I think it, you know, you would, you would, uh, you know, especially if this happened back then before they'd done a lot of their, you know, uh, core innovation on, on core food innovation. Um, yeah. And I, and, and I think today too, I think you, you would, uh, you, you, the, the whole is greater than the sum of the parts. And part of that whole is the ability to, to create innovative, uh, new food products and distribute them efficiently and and and, uh, and and serve them efficiently. Yeah, I think I think there's a bunch of different trade-offs. Uh, people say like, you know, the McDonald's model, it is neither a hierarchy nor is it kind of a decentralized market in the same way like a pure real estate investment trust would be. Uh, it, it, it like if it's a pure hierarchy, it would be like it's, you know, a, a military mm. run by McDonald's. The problem is you need a lot of discipline all the way down. When you run the McOpcos, they like actually the overall uh, you know revenues start dropping. You get a lot of kind of bureaucrats who kind of like you know sit in their laurels, mm. and there's a lot less flexibility. Mm. Uh, there's there's a good account uh, non-standard McDonald's kind of shows you the you know what you get when you get more flexibility of people just doing weird stuff with mm. their McDonald's. Uh, so, I'd, but so why can't they have a a, a model like why do they? Um... Why can't they still put significant effort into product innovation and uh, you know food uh, you know food related development stuff, but not own as many of their stores outright? That is what they have been doing in practice. So yeah. actually, since it peaked at thirty three percent, it's been dropping. I think by that two thousand five, when the uh, private equity whatever was 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 saying like, oh, here's our plan, what we want to do before we invest more. Uh, I think it was, you know, maybe like, you know, I think 20%. Mm-hmm. Now it's down to 93% franchise, 7% McOpco. Okay. I mean, uh, yeah, that that seems, I think, so, I mean, the the danger is that this then leads in a direction where uh, the... the where where the the divisions of Central McDonald's that would normally do food innovation are uh, and focus on on product stuff are are significantly you know strapped for resources as a result of this for for whatever reason. And I think that's the thing. Like that's the overall idea. McDonald's could completely shut up shop, like just like close the doors to hamburgers and say like you know what we're just going to sit in our assets because if you look at their equity, this is back to the two thousand five paper, the forty two billion in equity. 46 billion in real estate assets. Wow. So in fact, like their real estate assets are more than their overall equity. <laughs> so, <laughs> uh like like based upon that like okay, why don't they just stop existing as a hamburger place just become a passive landlord? Like they can do that, but I think well... I think they're making more sense to also uh drive extra rents from their brand and the kind of, uh, I guess, value add of what McDonald's brings to their franchisers. There's, there's that. There's, there's future, uh, just you know, opportunity uh, or, or sort of, um, uh, you know, option value, right? Of, um, 
you know, let's say for whatever reason, the core McDonald's, uh, um, whatever, you know, the, the, the McDonald's product we know today, uh, stops working in some way. They're able to have direct influence over fixing that, right? Uh, you know, people stop liking hamburgers for some reason. Yeah. They're able to pivot to something hamburger adjacent, you know. Uh, probably not the best idea for them, but but you know it's a hypothetical. Uh, and then the other, you know, potentially more important thing is, I think a lot of the value of that underlying real estate is tied to the fact that there's a McDonald's on it. <laughs> I think I think originally that is certainly the case. I think if they try to liquidate for other reasons, they probably it's forty six billion on the books now. Mm. They'll probably not lose a ton. I think a lot of it's pretty valuable stuff. This yeah. is like things like Sears, for example. I think they were number two owner behind Sears for a long time. Then they became number one. Sears became like a negative value, but really valuable real estate. I think someone for Kmart, and they kind of just realized, okay, let's kind of sell it off. We're mm-hmm. not the clock. Uh, they didn't really try to kind of just be a passive landlord, but I think you know Sears. Also, well, but Sears had real estate that is hard to repurpose for things other than large stores. <laughs> I think they probably had some downtown stuff that was probably mm. good, but I think all their exurban mall stuff didn't yeah. do so good for them. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, Whereas McDonald's, yeah, I mean, right, it's smaller parcels that are in, you know, probably mostly in, in, you know, areas where there's other stuff around them. So that probably helps. Um, and I think just in general, like... Everything happens when you have the McDonald's. It it helps you one get the people hungry enough to leverage new loans that get you more <laughs> like more real estate. Oh, you feed. just have way more options on how to run the business, which is yeah. is generally going to be a good thing. I mean, there's plenty of real estate companies out there. There's only one McDonald's. Yeah, and like it's other things to scale, like local franchisers. If you want to run local ads, I think like historically they would spend two to three percent of local ads. But they would put 1% towards the overall, I call OPNAD. I forget what this stands for. Ooh. But this is the National uh, national Cooperative Franchiser uh, you know, Fund for paying for ads. I think Corp also chips in. But, you know, like that's the thing. McDonald's spends a lot of money advertising over the years. And, like, that's the thing, like, scale gets you. And that's something yeah. that you yep. – I mean, And here's a big question. Uh, you know, people would say this is exploitative. Uh, SCIU, which is, uh, you know, a, a service worker union, uh, put out a paper in 2017, I believe, called McLandlord. And they basically just said, like, oh, McDonald's a landlord. Yeah, I mean, this is all just sure. correct. Yep. Uh, they said, like, this isn't right. The rent is four times the cost of of the of running of actually like the uh, basically just keeping the the. Uh, the interest on buying the land, but like it's a huge markup when they yeah. actually rent it back. Well, but to that's you. how they. I mean, that that's how they're able to continue to exist as a company. Yeah, and they say like, <laughs> oh, the, the the rent they charge, it's more than McOpco pays for its own stuff. It's more than other fran- uh, fast food franchises pay. So it's just this is not right. They're they're a landlord, and they say like, what are the uh, the 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 problems with this? You know, it's it hurts small business. It hurts the earning power of workers. Uh, it's just, you know, has a bunch of kind of like monopoly rents overall. It's not good. Uh, what would be other options? You know, you could, I've, I've actually only thought for years, when I talk about the, the scale you need for a large business, you look at like Ace Hardware. Ace Hardware is a franchise co-op. Mm. Uh, there are local franchises. There is no corporate, which is basically kind of the rentier here. 
it is they just work together to have like ad buys. Oh, huh. Okay. Which is an interesting model. They share the but risk. But do they own? Do they also own the the real estate? I th- I think just do whatever you want. It's uh, like you can mm-hmm. rent it. You can do whatever. There's probably like minimum standards, but more sure. or less, uh, there is no ace. There's corp. no and there's no shareholders. There's there's no need to create central value. All the exactly. value all the value propagates back to the individual franchisees, which theoretically is a is a more direct way to you know fund. Uh, you know, a good living for them and their employees, you know, in their and, and contribute value to their community. Yeah, I mean, that's the overall idea of rent in the economic sense is this is money that goes above what it actually contributes. And in this case, like, there's a bunch of money on McDonald's landlords or like shareholders and stuff, which is above what McDonald's actually contributes as far as operations and everything. Like, well, uh, but again, it comes back to they do actually have a very valuable core product, which is the, the you know the, the burgers and and associated food products that they allow their franchisees to serve. No, absolutely. I guess the, the question is like if it was like Ace Hardware, you would have every franchise you would get together. And basically, they would fund R and D. They would fund but, the but ads. That, yeah, but that doesn't. I mean, that works for Ace Hardware because they're selling tools, and there's there's they don't have to develop new tools, you know, versus or or, or even you know innovate in the way that they're selling the tools necessarily. People have a pretty fixed demand for tools, and they're satisfying it, uh, you know, versus McDonald's, which uh, has seen a lot of of its success. By being able to innovate in branding, distribution, the food product itself, operations, etc. I mean, if it wasn't doing those things, it wouldn't have the value that it has. I think you you have a I think probably the strongest point in the fact that McDonald's deals with suppliers has extremely resilient and flexible adaptive supply chains. Mm. Like a hardware store doesn't really need to have as much optimized supply chains, I don't think. Um, yeah, I mean, there's probably still value there in pooling, you know, uh, again, bringing costs uh, down, bringing wholesale costs down as a result of, of having demand across the entire Ace hardware ecosystem. Um, but I think the, the opportunity for Ace to add its own value on top of that is much, much less than the opportunity for McDonald's to add its own value on top of, of you know, food products. Yeah, I mean, I think it's, it's it it's 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 odd because I mean, I think it's you could say, oh, a different world, it would be done in a different way. Uh, it would be kind of you you could just replace. Let's see, the overall rents are being created. You could say like, okay, are they landlords in the same way like you know, uh, feudal lords are landlords and they have serfs. It's like, I mean, really, no one's no one has a gun to their head saying you must be a franchise. You know for mcdonald's Mm -hmm. this is a choice they make but in some way this is their best option like what what are their other options they can go to a different fast food chain or they can like i can just work for myself but here's the problem is i think one uh like if you're just some you know schmuck doing a a fast food shop it's not going to have the uh the the throughput and it's not going to make as much business. You won't have that name. You won't have that name. Uh, second um, one is, what if you are liquidity constrained? What if you don't have a lot of money? Yeah. Yep. If you don't have a lot of money, McDonald's helps you out 
helps you make money, but you basically have to pay them for the fact that you can't, you aren't big. You yeah, pay, you that, pay. that's that's a little bit futile. <laughs> it's a little, and it's very funny. Price discrimination is about you get the most amount of money out of everybody at different tiers. Mm. McDonald's has different tiers of franchisers. They're like normal franchise is you pay the fee, you pay the 9% rent plus the 4% uh, fee, like uh, just overall cut, mm. effectively 13% overall cut. Uh, if it's early, you only pay a flat rent if it's less if or 9%, whatever is biggest. So you know, overall, if you're making a lot of money, it's 13%. Mm-hmm. They also have something called FSL or something. It's, it's kind of like a franchise. I forgot this offhand. But it's for people who have less money, they will say, okay, you don't have to pay the whole fee up front. We'll you know, allow this to you, and then we'll allow you to pay more in the back end. So like, you know, they try to make sure everybody can get in, but mm-hmm. you pay as much as you can. It's kind of like, you know. Timeshares. <laughs> I was going to say like high interest, like payday loans and stuff, you know. <laughs> it's just that you try to get everyone at the right rate you can. And, you know, it's, 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 it's very effective. Yeah. Uh, but I think, so at the end of the day, I mean, the thing that, at least from my perspective, makes this feel better to me than... I feel better about it in a world where they're also continuing to make cool new burger products than in a world where they're purely a a real estate investment company. Oh, absolutely. I think there is, there is economic rent being enjoyed, but the overall firm of McDonald's is more interesting. It is worth mentioning too. You, you talk about if it was a hierarchy, if there was like a, just a military firm, they may be less innovative. And this actually is borne out in practice by the fact mm-hmm. most of their advances over the years were creations done by franchises. Oh, uh, interesting. Like, uh, I think from uh, there was a famous story that Ray Kroc says, like, okay, we have a problem. Uh, Catholics can't eat, you know, uh, beef on Friday. So he tried to say, what should people eat instead on Friday? And you know what mm. he created? <laughs> I, I remember this story, but I don't remember what. Uh, a fish thing? Uh well, some would say you should make a you know a fillet of fish sandwich. Sure. Or as Trump calls it, the fish delight. Uh, it will be a wonderful sandwich. Ray Kroc th- thought differently. He says, "Let's make a uh, Mikula burger." Oh yes, the Mikula. <laughs> yes, which, which is pork. No, it's or, just it's just pineapple. Oh. It's just grilled pineapple, which is like <laughs> that is not like that's not an actual protein rich meal. Uh, but in fact, the uh, Cincinnati operator was the person who made up the uh, the fillet of fish, and you know wow. they, they started rolling it out uh, later. Uh, this other franchiser, I think in the late '60s, whatever, created the Big Mac. Wow! And uh, you know, I think some things remain in corporate. They yeah. made the quarter pounder. They made the chicken McNuggets. Yep. But those are kind of the exceptions. So then, but then, then the value that corporate's providing is the ability to identify those innovations and then roll them out scalably across the whole system. At one hundred percent. But unlike, if you say, okay, this is you know the kind of like a Soviet-style hierarchy with some sort of you know feedback loop. It's an interesting story with the Big Mac. I think McDonald's corporate said you must use only the McDonald's style buns. We mm. will not allow you use to use uh, sesame seed buns. But the uh, the franchiser says no, I'm not going to do that, and just bought his own equipment, made the Big Mac, and just thumbed his nose at all his bosses. Which is kind of like that. That's the that's <laughs> the trade off. It's like, well, we want you to follow orders and crack the whip, but 
we want you to also try to cheat and like try to make money in different ways too. And, you know, ideally we, you, you cheat and make money and we learn from each other. So it's, 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 it's a loose hierarchy in a certain way. Yeah. 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 Hmm. So, uh, it is interesting. Like McDonald's and diversification, like they've talked about making McDonald's inns. McDonald's like, well, why not make the hotels? Well, I, that's interesting. Like I, they haven't like, why don't McDonald's say, Hey, we're going to try mixed use. Uh, we're going to build, uh, apartments on top of McDonald's. I mean, I think again, that gets back to the, the reason that their real estate bets are, are more well-informed and more successful than anyone else's is because they can build a burger place on the plot and, it's unclear they would have a similar advantage in another industry. I'm just saying they have they have valuable real estate. Why not build an apartment on top of McDonald's? Because I'll say at least I'll raise my hand. I would love to live in an apartment <laughs> on top of McDonald's. Oh, I mean, so okay, no, sure, using it, and I'm sure they do that in some situations. They must if they. I mean, they they probably own plots of land that. They, they don't. They, they don't scale it. At least, I guess uh, yeah, that's the yeah, question. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> could they scale it some more? Um, yeah, I mean, sure. You know that 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 would make sense. Yes, uh, as long as it didn't detract from the core McDonald's product. If they could find ways to make use of the land they own in additional ways beyond just it being a burger place without disrupting the burger place, yeah, that sounds like a good idea. I mean, it doesn't sound like. I wouldn't bet the company on that. <laughs> no, I think you have to bring you have to bring in a lot of uh, you know kind of domain experts to make this happen. I just yeah. think you know th- th- it grows. I mean, this is kind of like you know is is this imperialism? First, they kind of created the fast food market. They built, they outcompeted. Then they go international and build all these domains. What's next? I think honestly, it would be going into using their land in more kind of uh, intensive ways, such as building apartment buildings adopt their McDonald's. Uh, but uh, here, here's one more thing of, of uh, diversification I didn't know of. Uh, in the, the late 60s, uh, Ray Kroc wanted to uh, diversify into the theme park world. Oh. He, in fact, wanted to buy land in San Bernardino and build Western World. What which is it with San Bernardino specifically? But okay, it's just a wonderful place. What? I believe it's San Bernardino, <laughs> but it was basically he's like uh, he had people in the company who actually advised Walt Disney on Disneyland. Yeah, and he's like, "Well, I'm going to do a better version of that. It's going to be Western World," <laughs> which I think people like convince him not to do that, but it's, it's pretty funny. Yeah, I mean, it's certainly not a not as as scalable of a business. Well, I think it would have been a big, big risk, and uh, it would have taken a ton of money. I think well, so, it would have cost at least $30 million at the time, you know, pre-stagflation. That's a lot of money. Yeah, yes. And, I mean, yeah, Disneyland also was very expensive and almost bankrupted Walt Disney. So, yes. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, I think they had the last laugh because they eventually got the contract to distribute McDonald's food in Disneyland. So Yeah, and they're old, they're old buds, too. That's Walt Disney and, and Ray Kroc back in World War One. Oh. Uh, yeah, it's pretty wild. Uh, uh, so yeah, I remember that at uh, at uh, uh, what was it? What was that? What was that ride in California Adventure uh, or the, the the attraction for? No, are, are you think so? There's a McDonald's stand on the river. There was a McDonald's stand on the Rivers of America in Disneyland, uh, which was the uh, I forget the name. There it's, was you know, or it still is. Uh, the the stand is still there. It's now a generic, uh, you know, Fisherman's Wharf style. Oh, that uh, sucks. You know, um, uh restaurant but it used to be a, a fry shack oh that sucked well i remember <laughs> when california adventure started 
they had a giant McDonald's theme. I think it was like space alien theme McDonald's stand. It oh, huge. oh, um, you're right. Yes, sorry, I forgot about that. Yes, yeah. you're you're right. They there is a. Big. I can't remember the it's name, like but yes, and and there was a there was the SS what's now called the SS Rustworthy, uh, which actually I don't even know if it's there anymore. Uh, which was a sort of playground um, uh, ship, you know, like a, a ship you could you could um, climb around, you know, kids could climb around and, mm. and shoot water guns from. Yeah, and uh, that used to be McDonald's branded. Oh, no kidding! That's yeah. pretty cool. Yep. Final thought here, which is just. The overall model of value add, you know, kind of production versus exploitation. It's interesting to kind of like, you know, uh, turn this on to the state of labor in McDonald's has always been very low. <laughs> like it's. Yeah. It's, I mean, I was reading in Big Mac the I guess they were initially prevented from entering San Francisco because, you know, from from establishing restaurants in San Francisco because they couldn't meet minimum wage requirements. Yeah, they've always been like anti-minimum wage. They've always been like we are only using kind of like teen workers, even though in reality that's not the case. And like, oh, we don't need to pay full wages. We are very anti-union. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's very funny too that like on top of this, their overall operations are almost detached from the actual workers. Like for example, I, there's actually studies showing that the amount of pay for workers, minimum wage changes and so on has apparently no effect on the price of McDonald's food in different markets. Hmm. Uh, well, because think... isn't it the it's it's the it would more be affecting the franchisees bottom line versus McDonald's overall bottom line, right? I maybe that's the case. It would like they someone would take the overall revenue, the revenues people would still buy as many burgers. But the the overhead would be less. You know, yeah. they, they get a cut off the top, not the not the net. But uh, it's like in, in in Denmark, people mention all the time because they have sectoral bargaining. Uh, the overall fast food staffs there across Denmark have one wage, and it's like twenty two bucks an hour. And hmm. you know, the the food is not more expensive. Other place I was reading, like in Germany, that is thwarted based upon like their labor law. It's difficult to actually have collective bargaining because it's based upon the business. But in the in like based on their labor law, the business in that case is the franchise. Oh it's wow! It's shop level. You could have a union for each location. Yeah, which is I mean that's basically American style unionism, which is not doesn't work that well. <laughs> is the problem. But uh, it, it is, like, worth, like, insofar it's divorced. I mean, the, the Marxist model of exploitation is workers create the value, bosses steal the value. It's, I mean, it's a lot kind of stranger in McDonald's because it's kind of like the, 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 the local firm creates the value in some way. Mm. But mostly the landlord kind of sucks up the value to make it. Like, they don't, they don't, make, they don't get the money as the boss. Mm-hmm. They get it as the landlord. Sure which is why this is the Henry George program and this is why it's it's relevant. But Okay, uh, very good. That's uh that's been a little bit about McDonald's. Uh yeah, hope uh, uh give us a uh, feedback uh or any, any more questions. And yeah, and and now I would say I mean big plans after this going to eat some McDonald's. Should I'm excited exciting. to try. Uh they have their own variant on the famous spicy chicken sandwich. So I think I'm going to give us a, give us a little 
coming cool. back to it, they're always innovating, delivering new food products for the masses. It's it's exciting to watch. They swing for the fences, you know. I was when I was reading this book from the, the mid '80s. They say like <laughs> McDonald's always making big changes. They've just un- unleashed the the big new sensation in the fast food world, the McDLT. You know what will they <laughs> what will they think of next? Oh, famously successful. But, uh, yeah, so uh, I don't know what uh, you'll be back to talk about in the future, but uh, thanks for making a uh, third appearance. Of course. Always happy to be here. Looking forward to all of the fan mail that you're going to forward to me. Uh, Straight to my uh, junk box. Very uh, good. We have been talking about McDonald's with Alan Joyce for quite some time. Uh, Just a side note, if you want to hear the other podcast uh, the two of us do together, uh, it is at earfulof.com. We are currently uh, in hour 40 of talking about the 1998 movie You've Got Mail. But uh, you can find this episode and all previous episodes of the podcast at the website seethecat.org. It's a presentation of Katie Shiro, Stanford. 